got a surf band based out of Milan, Italy this week on the show. The band is called Wave Electric, and they just released what they're calling, and this is the actual title, self-titled debut LP. The song is called Moon Surfing, and they gave us permission to play their song on this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm talking about Monster Kid Radio. Welcome to the show. My name is Derek M. Cook, your writer, host, and producer. And I'm excited this week because we're going to be talking about a movie that I really, really love. I, I mean, I love all the movies that we talk about here on the show. In one way or another, for the most part, I always find something to enjoy. But this is one that I've really, really enjoyed since the first time I saw it not too long ago. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a second. We're talking about the 1931 film Dracula, but not the Dracula that you may know. We're talking about Dracula. The Spanish language version, or in Spanish, I can't pronounce my R, so I'm not going to try, but it's Dracula in Spanish. It was produced by Universal at night while the Todd Browning film was being produced during the day on the same set, same script, completely different cast and crew, completely different movie, but complimentary, and we're going to talk about that with friend of the show, Ricardo Delgado. Ricardo has been involved in the film industry uh, for years. He's also an incredible artist, a phenomenal author, and, well, he's a monster kid. He's one of us. So we're going to talk about the 1931 Spanish-language version of Dracula this week here on the show. Of course, it would not be an episode of Monster Kid Radio if we did not have Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review and Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. And, yes, Kenny, I know what's coming up next week on the show as well. I'll announce that at the very end. Anyway, before we get into the meat of the show, I just want to take a second to send a huge shout-out. I don't know if anybody's listening from them or not, but a huge shout-out to the Funhouse Lounge. This is a comedy club and lounge and performance space here in Portland, Oregon, over there on Southeast 11th Avenue, 2432 Southeast 11th Avenue in Portland, to be specific. You can find out more about them at funhouselounge.com. Why am I mentioning Funhouse Lounge? Well... The other day, Beth and I went to go see a show there. It was an improv comedy show called Comedy of Terrors. Their version of Comedy of Terrors. They took some Shakespearean stuff and they mixed in some classic monsters. And it was pretty darn cool. Now, when you think about going to an improv show, a lot of times these improv shows are driven by audience suggestions. There was just a little bit of an opportunity for some audience suggestions at the very, very beginning of the show where they were asking for a classic monster. Yeah, they, they left that completely up to the audience. And this is what I really liked about it. This is what I thought was cool. So before I could say anything, somebody yelled out, Mike Wazowski, and somebody asked about a classic monster. Now, Mike Wazowski is a character from the Monsters, Inc. films from Disney, and that's cool and all. But is it a classic monster? Absolutely not. And I appreciated that the person kind of emceeing the event, hosting the event, running the thing, gently dejected, rejected that response and said, we need something a little bit more classic monster. So, of course, I was able to shout out Creature from the Black Lagoon, and that's what they went with. But then somebody else tried to say Cujo, you know, the Stephen King film. And again, I really appreciated that, despite the fact that the Cujo movie came out, my goodness, 30 plus years ago? When did that come out? It still wasn't quote-unquote classic horror compared to, well, what we consider classic horror in the Monster Kid community. And I 
think that's really cool and special and I appreciate and I am so grateful that we still live in an age in which just because somebody says classic, it doesn't necessarily mean old, but the classic horror cinema moniker or label or genre still refers to the kind of stuff that we talk about here on Monster Kid Radio. I, I don't know. Sometimes I get a little frustrated or, or sad or, I don't know, just down when I think about kids these days and their classic monster movies. All they think about is Friday the 13th and all this, the slashers. What it, I, I don't know what that voice was. But I think the classic horror monsters, the universal stuff in particular, as well as all the other stuff around it, they are deserving of iconic status and stature, even if their creators and their caretakers, Universal, I'm talking to you, don't know how to handle it or, or support them or treat them these days. They're still special. And it was just kind of heartwarming in a weird way to have this experience where these people who are younger than me are putting on an improv show and they recognize that Creature from the Black Lagoon is a classic movie monster. Cujo is not. Honestly, I've never seen the film, so I don't know. But, but still, Cujo is not. And I appreciated that. It was nice to see. How was the show? I had a grand time. It was a, a smaller audience. Beth was a little shocked by how few people were there, but it was also opening night. And, you know, we still are in the pandemic slash endemic. So, yeah, it was probably a good thing that it was not a full house. Uh, for us, anyway, I worry about the Funhouse Lounge and kind of money they brought in that night. But anyway, uh, we all wore our masks. That was a requirement to get in. And it was a small cast of like five, was it five or six people? And what they did is they, they had, I think, the bare bones of a Shakespearean story. And they just kind of went for it and tried to work in elements from Creature from the Black Lagoon. After I said Creature, they asked for like three characteristics of Creature so that they could maybe kind of key into that a little bit more. And I talked about how he's a swimming monster, he's aquatic, uh, really likes women in white bathing suits, uh, and Beth out there that uh, he is cunning and lays traps and is smart and calculating and they told what I suppose could be a Shakespearean story I don't know I don't know my Shakespeare well enough to know but uh, there are a lot of these and thou's and verilies and things like that and they turned it into this murder story that was taking place in a jungle and a lagoon and I had such a grand time. Oh, so good. I, you know, improv performances like that don't necessarily lend themselves to repeat performances, and, and rightly so. Part of the magic of improv is the spontaneity and that sort of thing, right? So I'm curious as to how the show would play again with a different monster, or maybe even with the same monster. And... If I decided to, I could probably go see it again because it's still showing, and that's ultimately why I'm bringing it up now. It's playing through September 2nd, again at the Funhouse Lounge. I'm going to put a link to the Comedy of Terror's Facebook event page in the show notes. If you're in the area, I recommend it. Check it out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. All right, let's get into the bulk of the show. Let's go ahead and get into all of this. I'm excited to talk about Dracula with Ricardo and... Oh, man. 
I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. from end to end. Even Scotland Yard is baffled. But two men of intrepid daring fight back. It's Abbott and Costello at their hilarious best. Battling fiction's most fearsome themes in Bud Abbott and Lou Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Co-starring Boris Karloff as Robert Louis Stevenson's fabulous double demon. Mr. Hyde will kill him. Mr. Hyde will kill him. With Helen Wesson, Craig Stevens, and Reginald Denny. Hey, stop this fight! There's ladies! Bud and Lou are tearing up the town, trapping the beast among a bevy of beauties, adding turmoil to terror in a house of horrors that would frighten even Frankenstein. Come on, Lou! Can't kill the monster! Give me a hand! And what a riot when they get funny notions from deadly potions. Hey, Slim. What? Those guys must be seeing things. Pay no attention to them, they're drunk. You know, there's always a way of... Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Episode 30 of Ultra 7 is entitled, Glory for Whom? It's a question that each member of the Ultra Guard must answer for themselves. The question is provoked by the appearance of new recruit Aoki, who demonstrates great skill, but whose drive to succeed pits him against his own team. His aggressive pursuit of acclaim is of concern first to Furuhashi, who accompanies Aoki on a training flight and watches in horror as the young man tries to take out Dan's plane. 
Chalking it up to overconfidence, Captain Kiriyama assigns Dan to partner with Aoki on an investigation. But the recruit's ambition gets the better of him, and he recklessly fires on a mysterious tank, leading to another confrontation with Dan. Things really come to a head when a training exercise involving the magma riser takes a deadly turn. Enabled by Aoki's tampering, an opportunistic alien interferes, and the mock combat becomes a real battle. Ultra 7 begins a grueling duel with alien Platic, while Aoki learns that service in the Ultra Guard requires more than individual talent. But he pays a high price to gain this knowledge. Glory For Whom is a memorable mid-series meditation on the contrast between heroism and hubris, and as the story shows, there can be a fine line between the two. After all, the Ultra Guard is an elite squad, its members possessing specialized skills which must be employed with excellence. This has to be balanced with humility and teamwork, exemplified by Dan Moroboshi and his pairing with Aoki points out the distinctions in attitude between them. Episode 30 could have been an all-time classic were it not for an unfortunately goofy-looking villain whose toughness is undermined by the fact that it looks like he's wearing a coat made out of plastic bags. As it is, the standout element is the character of Aoki, played by Takehisa Yamaguchi, who seems tragically trapped by his self-aggrandizing nature. Yamaguchi is a charismatic presence on screen. So it's not surprising that in 1973, he would go on to star as Rider-Man Joji Yuki in Kamen Rider V3, sharing the screen with Akiji Kobayashi, also known as Ultraman's Captain Muramatsu. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. hysterical, hilarious horrors when you join those Bowery boys as overnight guests in a mansion of merry maniacs. We just want your heads. Well, oh, well, if you said that in a foot. Our heads? Uncle Anton, the scientific stoop. Oh, oh, oh. Would you like a high cut or a low cut, sir? Oh, I'd like a low cut. Uncle Derek, the medical madman. What is it you're trying to say? Help! Yeah. Cousin Francine, the fluff with the stuff. I mean business. Aunt Amelia, who's no camellia. The butler Grisson, he's gruesome. The family tree, a man-eating honeysuckle. Boy, oh boy, I feel just like a space cadet. This will register his brain potential. <laughs> My friend here has a vacuum-packed head. The Bowery Boys get the heebies, the jeebies, the willies, and the shakes, while you get the laughs of the year. Gentlemen, I have a suggestion. 50-50. Routine six, Satch.
It's coming. The world's craziest fun and fright show, The Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monster. It's so scary, so crazy, we dare you to see it. We dare you to see The Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monsters. The screen's funniest and wildest teenagers in the craziest fun and fright show you've ever seen. Weird and frightening movie monster. Not only on the screen, but in the audience, alive and in person. See the horrifying mad mummy come to life and go into the audience to get you. We warn you, don't come if you're chicken. This show is not for sissies. If you're not afraid, be sure to see the world's craziest fun and fright show, The Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monster. thousand and one laughs, thrills, and chills. Widescreen and Eastman Color. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we are talking about the 1931 Spanish version of Dracula. It was mentioned briefly in a giant two-part article on Dracula 1931 and its sequels. They appeared in FM 22 and 23 from April and June of 1963. They were reprinted numerous times throughout the run of FM. The two articles spanned 32 pages and included a whopping 59 pictures. In FM 22, after history and facts about the Lugosi version, this promise was made. Eight weeks from now, in issue 23, we'll be back with another 16 pages or more on the Mexican version of Dracula made in 1931. The coverage found in FM 23 was limited to a series of photos. There was no write-up on the film and its history. The first picture is from the scene when Van Helsing confronts Renfield in the asylum. A famous scene between Renfield and Van Helsing recreated in the early Spanish version. Next up is a picture of Carlos Villar standing in the garden, staring intently. Conde, Count Dracula, Transylvanian with a Spanish accent. A picture of Drac pouncing on a sleeping victim follows. Carlos Villar in his interpretation of a classic moment of terror in Dracula, Spanish 1931 version. Then we see a closer shot with the vampire preparing to bite that same victim. In another second, the two small pinpoint pricks on the sleeper's throat, the calling card of Count Dracula, VR. And finally, a shot of the Count choking Renfield on the stairs. Spanish Renfield is introduced to old Castilian custom in the castle of the man in the custom-made costume. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Bay, a son of Pharaoh, died in the desert, 
and was covered in the shroud that bore the sacred power of life and death. What was he saying? He says that death awaits all who disturb the resting place of Kato Bay. Warning to every creature of flesh and blood, beware the beat of the cloth-wrapped feet. Beware the curse of the mummy's shroud. This is the leader of the British expedition who came in search of the tomb. <laughs> the rich and ruthless financier who believes money can bribe even the devil himself. This is the son who knows there is no escape. Someone or, or something is trying to destroy us. I believe it'll find us wherever we go. The wife and mother trapped by the mummy's shroud. Ah, oh, I, I see death. This is Haiti, the crystal gazer, who sees into the past and the terrifying future. This is the girl who's doomed, cursed by the mummy's shroud. You mean I'm going to die? <laughs> In a few minutes from now. <laughs> Kill her! Dead a thousand years, now he lives and breathes to avenge an ancient curse, to strangle the living, praise the dead, and prey upon human flesh. I told them to bring me one, and I'd believe it. Well, I can't say I blame you, Sheriff. But Flynn's still missing. Deep into caverns whose very air is putrefied by the stench of death. They search ceaselessly for a missing man, or possibly a giant spider no one really believes exists. Except the high school teacher who knows his science and his students. There'll be more giant spiders coming into the world. They may even be hatching from their eggs in some remote spot right now. Do you realize how easy it would be for them to overcome us humans? A horrifying spectacle. Its existence shocks and fascinates the world of science. Its gigantic claws capable of crushing a man. Or tearing a woman apart as if she were a fly. But nothing sends the cats like the presence of out-of-this-world horror. A heart-stopping experience that defies man's imagination. That shrinks every woman's skin with the tension of terrifying withdrawal. As if a thousand spiders were taking possession of her body. You'll never believe it until you see it. You'll never forget the touch of the spider. 
This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Listeners, I'm just going to say right off the bat, no disrespect, no disrespect whatsoever for the Bela Lugosi classic film. But there's a lot about the Spanish language version of Dracula that's really, really good and dare I say even better than what Todd Browning put on screen. And we're going to talk about that. And we're just going to catch up with somebody who hasn't been on the show in a while, Ricardo Delgado. Welcome back to Monster Kid Radio, sir. Thank you, D. I'm certainly happy to be here and happy to talk about things that bump in the night. And uh, I thought you summed it up really, really well that, you know, no disrespect at all intended to the uh, Lugosi Todd Browning Dracula, which we all adore and take into our, our darkened hearts. Um, but we're we're talking about essentially a companion piece today. And I, you know, uh, deeply fascinated by that journey, and uh, when you asked me uh, if I wanted to do it, I, I leaped, I leaped at it. Yes. So. To be fair, you and I have a list of like three or four different things that we want to talk about. That we keep saying, let's do this, let's do that, and then I never follow up with it. So thank you for doing this one at least, and we'll definitely have you back on in the near future to do the others. But right now, oh, this movie, it's it's a treat, and I want to talk about it, but I want to catch up with you too. Last year, you came out with an incredible book about Dracula. Dracula of Transylvania came out in November of last year. Uh, it's still available for sale. This is a fantastic, fantastic Thank book. you, Derek. I mean, I'm really pleased with the way it came out. I'm pleased that it was received really well. It was a labor of love uh, for, many, um, for many reasons, and the English version of the film that we're going to talk about today is one of them. You know, I, I just, I grew up, adoring um, the universal monsters uh, but i think it was as we've discussed before dracula was the one universal monster that was like you know what i'm kind of a jerk and i'm okay with it you know the um the frankenstein monster's <laughs> like look i'm just a victim of circumstance actually various circumstances here you know and larry talbot's like hey i was at the wrong place at the wrong time you know and the gill man's like look i'm just a, i'm just a fish here you know leave me alone but dracula Dracula was the one that was like, hey, leave the window open and no Wolfsbane, please, so I can come in and drain the life out of you, because that's what I do. And um, I wanted to write an illustrated version of Dracula that kind of reflected all my different um, favorite Draculas, because kind of, they're all my favorites. And uh, I was pleased with the mm-hmm. way it came out. And so was Clover was so happy with it that they decided to um, release Later this year, an art of Dracula uh, of Transylvania, and it'll be a very Clover only puts we only put uh, about twenty to thirty illustrations in the original novel. There's actually over 150 uh, images that this book will feature, 
and have actually gone through and painstakingly, you know, written uh, blurbs, quotes, anecdotes about each of the creations of the pieces uh, the, of concept art that I um, I created for the book. And to refresh everyone's memory a little bit, I've been a working concept artist in Hollywood, you know, for the last 25 to 30 years. And I've just gotten to the point where I wanted to tell my own story. So I, I, I mostly teach now and... Um, Dracula Transylvania is one of the you know first books uh, out of out, but I I love the idea of illustrating my stories with concept art, and this forthcoming uh, Art of Dracula Transylvania will will feature all that. And um, you know, find me on uh, social media, and um, we will have links to to get you to that book when it comes out. So I'm excited. I'm excited. I am looking forward to it. I, I'm a fan of your artwork. I mean, we're friends, we are. but I'm Thank also you. a fan and a fan of your artwork and a fan of what you've done. And when we first started connecting and I realized, dude, you worked on Star Trek. Dude, you did all this <laughs> cool stuff. And now I get to call this guy who worked on the stuff that I love a friend. How cool is that? And I get to continue to support him through even more content. Your version of Dracula, it is it is epic. It the, the original story is great. Bram Stoker's Dracula is a classic for a reason. There's a reason why it inspired so much and spawned right. so much. But it's also one of the stories that I feel like a lot of people have tried to put a different spin on or have kind of told their own version of it. And what you did with it is really incorporated not just the Stoker original, but all these different flavors and, and influences and just made this huge epic story. And it's fantastic. So, listeners, please check it out. Please check it out. I'll make sure there's a link in the Thank show notes. Thank you. My, my pitch to Clover was, you know, The Exorcist meets uh, Lord of the Rings. And um, that's, exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what it turned out to be, you know. Uh, but my, my Dracula is the malevolent Dracula. He is Christopher Lee. He is the Tomb of Dracula Dracula. He's the no fooling around Dracula. And he's, he just takes no prisoners and um there's this whole supernatural world that kind of surrounds him either in a way that is serving him or is trying to assassinate him you know it's pretty cool i'm I'm very proud of it i'm very humble about it yes it's a really good way to put it and a really great way to sum it up and i'm looking forward to the Thanks, art book man. looking forward to it. and that's when did you say when that's yes, coming out it should be out in december they're going to do a um okay clover will announce a Kickstarter early in the fall. It is more more than anything else, a kind of a labor of love. And I talk about, you know, a, a piece of art, but also in that piece of art, I, I talk about what inspired me, you know, and we've talked a little bit about it. Uh, um, when I was a kid, I spent uh, part of my childhood in Costa Rica. Uh, Dark Shadows was not called Dark Shadows to me. It was called Sombras Tenebrosa. And, um, uh, all, all the characters spoke in Spanish. And so I never, as a kid, saw Dark Shadows in English until, you know, Tubi came out, which is pretty cool. So you can kind of go through it. Um, but it was just kind of an analogous to the Universal Monster movies for me. I, I, you know, I love Dark Shadows. As a kid, so um, all that. Dark Shadows yeah. is good. Dark Shadows, I'm a yeah. huge fan. And, uh, you know, sidetrack listeners, if you're not listening to Penny Dreadful's Tara Collingwood podcast, you are missing out because she really gets into some Dark Shadows goodness. But that's 
Besides well, school. yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> and then in addition, I had uh, a uncle that kind of realized I loved uh, all things undead, and so he took me in no short order to watch the Christopher Lee uh, Dracula's in Spanish, and then El, San- El Santo contra las Mujeres Vampiros. Uh, as well, which I was like, okay, Alfonso's cool, but these vampire women are even cooler. And so it was just a really good time for me to see, you know, and absorb Nosferatu in another language. And that's why in my novel, forgive me for tying it back to my silly stuff, but that's why in my novel, no, no, all, please, uh, my vampires speak different languages, you know, and it's, it's, I wrote it into the story and, you know, I, annotated in English afterwards, but it's just a lot of fun. But that's just, you know, when you're a kid and, you know, Peter Cushing runs along the table and you're like, what's he doing? He's going to jump and he's going to pull these curtains. Oh, my God, he's going to, he's pouring them, he's pouring them like down on Dracula's leg. That's some pretty cool stuff. You know, that was like, it really impressed me, you know, made an impression upon me. Yeah. And so, and then when you, later on, I would see them in English, right, uh, back in the States and, Mm-hmm. It, you know, it just it impacted me. I mean, Brides of Dracula turns the windmill to form a cross. Oh, my God, you know. Isn't that, that the coolest? That, I mean, <laughs> those two are probably, well, there's the whole Death Star thing as well. But those two are among the coolest endings wow. I think I've ever seen in a movie. It's like, holy smokes. No fooling around. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, that is one of my favorite moments in any vampire film is the climax of Brides right. of Dracula. I love that. Love and I will, I will go to bat for Me that too. film. Just no, no, because I have, the, I... I have the, oh. I'm looking at the Blu-ray right over my shoulder here in the whole vampire section of my DVD Blu-ray collection. I love that one. So good. Highly recommended. Oh, it's so yes. good. And, and, oh, and it, it's, um, they're just terrific parables that, you know, just really deeply impress me. And, in the end, made me want to tell my own story, you know, 25, 30 years later. So there we go. I love that about being a monster kid, loving this stuff, that it drives so many of us to want to tell our own stories in that world with that flavor, with that, that feeling, that vibe. Whether it's somebody like you who's writing and he's been an artist and now you're teaching and everything else, or... Uh, Steve Sullivan, who's an author, or the various filmmakers I've had on here, like Chris Pym or Josh Kennedy, or even what I do. I love that these monsters, yeah, okay, they're supposed to be scary, but they also kind of welcome us right. in and want us to be part of that right. world. And I love that so much about this particular genre. Well, I mean, in my concept, in the concept art uh, classes that I teach, we talk a lot about world building, you know, and the, the universal uh, monster yeah. universe, if you will, is just this deep example of world building it it just sucked me in as a kid and so i i got really picky as a as a little boy and i said okay if they turn don't turn into bats they're not vampires right and i really religiously quite strangely held on to that and then this movie called this tv movie called fatal on the block came along and i was like oh well i'm gonna have to revise that and so but it was fascinating it's fascinating <laughs> for me as, a, as an uh, older guy now to think back on or the scrutiny that I would place upon, you know, the universal monster lexicon. It's only because I loved it so much. It really, it really meant a lot to me, you know, and, um, Don Gluth, who actually Don Gluth and Gary Rhodes, two Dracula scholars, they are writing the intros to, uh, uh, the art of Dracula of Transylvania. And yeah, oh, yeah? Don has, 
Don has this great great saying, says, look, if you can't outrun the mummy, you deserve to die. And I've always thought that that was just completely, (laughs) you know, hilarious. As a kid who, you know what, I kind of know that the mummy is better than the mummy sequels, but there's a hell of a lot of mummy in the mummy sequels. I love them. I love them. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, I, you can get me going on mummy movies. I know, and I, I. I know I, I would start to fill in the, the, the gaps of movies that should have been made, like um, the return of the Bride of Frankenstein or, you know, the Wolfman versus Dracula, oh. you know, I, I, all that stuff. I would, oh, you know, man. I, and I would think, you know, that's, that's the thing that, yeah, that's the stuff that made me, you know, so interested in it. The, but it was all about the love, you know, and, and in the end, I will say that as much as I love Edward uh, Van Sloan and I enjoy Eduardo Arosamena in this movie we're going to talk about, it's all about Peter Cushing. I gotta, I gotta be honest. Like he kind of mm-hmm. by nose is is Van Helsing for me. Like he was just so cool back then, oh, yeah. and um, you know, and also he was very, he's kind of a very tender um, character uh, in terms of how he dealt with people who he needed to help and i i saw that a little bit more but um still a lot of fun indeed oh man yeah oh i was worried about this but i'm also thrilled about this that yeah we're gonna talk about spanish dracula and here we are what 10 minutes 15 minutes in and we've talked about Peter Cushing, <laughs> the mummy f- sequels the mummy sequels uh all this I, and i love it i that's one of my favorite things about this podcast is that Sure, we might get together to talk about one thing, but again, these monsters just want to open their arms and bring us in and start chatting. Oh, right. man. I, I have got goosebumps right, right now just thinking about, you know, again, I'm stuck on the Brides of Dracula thing, but then you mentioned the mummies. I'm like, oh, you're speaking my language. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I would say that a good entry for huh. this discussion is the idea that I would put out there to anyone listening is, to watch these two movies, the Browning and Melford version back to back. Like I, I really, I really recommend that. And I, yeah. and I would watch that with an open monster kid heart and just kind of say, look, you know, I adore Bella, uh, or I, I have faults with Bella film, however you feel about it, but enjoy that. And then, and then watch the Melford film. Like uh, George Melford was a guy that didn't speak Spanish. He had an interpreter on the set. And as, you know, we all know, according to the lore of this story, you know, the cast filmed at night while the Browning cast uh, filmed during the day, uh, during the same sets. And it's a great exercise as someone who teaches a storyboarding class to see, you know, to realize that um, apparently Melford would watch the dailies of the Browning film shooting from the day before. So he was almost like, and we use a sports term on a monster kid show. He was like the Monday morning quarterback. He could see what he could <laughs> see what Todd Browning had done earlier that day or the day before, and he could say, "You know what? I want to do that, or I don't want to do that." And so, it's, again, I would watch watch the Browning film first and, and see it and enjoy it. And the best example of that is the magnificent, you know, opening twenty minutes of uh, of the Lugosi film in Transylvania. And then, you know, watching the first 20 minutes of the Spanish language version and just seeing there's more camera movement in the Milford version, you know, the photography, especially Mm -hmm. in uh, Renfield's chamber, is pretty crisp. 
you see differences in the decision making of the directors in the Lugosi version. Um, it appears that Dracula is the one that bites uh, Renfield, and in the Melford version, it is very clearly that the brides overcome uh, uh, Renfield. Yeah. You know, and then kind of moving forward, uh, there actually let me kind of move back. There's just a the way that the brides are introduced, uh, there's a great shot in the Milford version where you're outside the window and you're looking past uh, Renfield. He's kind of looking around outside. He's He's been drugged and he's trying to get fresh air. And behind him, you could see the brides kind of lurking and ready to pounce. And that's what you do if you're Milford and you've seen the coverage that perhaps um, Browning has done the day before and you go, you know, I want to introduce the brides in a different way. I'm going to I'm going to do it like this. Because if you look clearly at the Browning version, the brides come in from the left side. They come in from the inside. So it's mm-hmm. it's just really beautiful thing to see that contrast and and um the different ways that the same, you know, story solutions were kind of brought toward, you know. So you said something a second ago and I wanted to yeah. jump on that when you recommend people watch this back to back. And that's how I saw this film for the first time. I'd known the story. I'd known about Spanish language Dracula. I'd owned it. It it gets included in a lot of special features in Dracula DVD Correct. on Blu-ray or, or on Blu-ray. Uh, but I just never sat down to watch mm-hmm. it, you know, cause I, I love my Bela Lugosi. So that's what I watched a few years ago. I can't remember when it was, um, I was trying to look it up here and I can't find it, but several years ago, Fathom Events did a screening with Turner Classic Movies and they showed both Dracula's back to back as a double feature. And that's how I watched it as I watched the Lugosi film and I loved it. And then about a third of the theater left (laughs) during the intermission in between, which I mean, interesting. I don't know what they were thinking because we got to see the Spanish language Dracula right after that. And it was amazing yeah. to see it that way on the big screen. There are details in the Spanish language version of the film that highlighted things that I didn't notice in the English language Correct. version of the film. So, I mean, they are such a complimentary uh, package. And I I think it's a great way to see these movies or to see this movie for the first time to see it as a back-to-back experience. Right. Um it's so good. Uh, there's even like a fan edit out there somewhere that somebody Ooh, put together really? okay. uh, a cut of, yeah, what they did is they took the Lugosi Dracula and kind of uh-huh. recut it to kind of match some of the pacing from the Spanish language version. I've never watched it. I've, I've heard about it. And every time I go to try to find it, I can't find it online, but I've heard about it and I'd like to watch it just to kind of see how that works because. I agree. Lugosi. Yeah, Lugosi is the man. I mean, I I love Lugosi, but there's so much more dynamic stuff happening in the Spanish language. There is, and if you sit down and um, Monster Kids, everyone listening to this, if you do have a cut, please send it to Derek and I. We're both on Facebook. You can track us down, you know. We'd love to see (laughs) it, uh, but, you know, very definitely there's a different sensibility going on. Uh, even though they're uh, they're shooting from the same script on the same sets, like there's three shots of right. a spider. There's the traditional spider crawling up the wall in the Lugosi version. There's actually three shots of the spider in in the Melford version. Mm-hmm. You know, and 
Yes. Um, Lugosi is the archetype Dracula. When you watch them back to back, you get that sense. They're, um, the, the decision of uh, Todd Browning to illuminate the eyes of uh, Lugosi is, in my opinion, one of the great uh, decisions in film history. Oh, because yeah. They don't do that really in the VRES version. There's some pretty strong close-ups of his eyes. And they look very, you know, Christopher Lee-like, honestly, if we're going to be, you know, specific about mm -hmm. it. But, you know, Lugosi is very regal and he's very elegant and, you know, really exudes confidence and, and the sort of um, um, royalty. Whereas Villarreal is a little bit more brusque, you know, uh, he's confident in a different way. And um, I think that the Villarreal's performance is a little bit more based on silent film acting, whereas Lugosi, we have to remember this, Lugosi had the benefit of doing this role on stage many, many, many times, right? So he was accustomed. Mm -hmm. He was already comfortable in his Dracula shoes, and he kind of knew what he wanted to do, and um, it's terrific. It's terrific. It's a towering performance by Lugosi, and Anyone else, you know, uh, Villarreal is like the George Lazenby of uh, of, uh, of of Dracula. <laughs> and I, I have you. The irony that I'm going to say to that is that On Her Majesty's Secret Service is, in my opinion, one of the best Bond films ever made. And I, yeah, I agree. I, I, love, I love that it film. too. And as much as everyone loves John Connery, like everyone loves Bela Lugosi, you know, Villarreal is pretty good. I will notice that. Bella wears his family, his crest, the royal sort of emblem uh, in the first scene. And then uh, when he's in England, he doesn't, if I remember correctly. And I don't think Villarreal wears it at all in the picture. I don't think he wears, wears it at all. So, um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting contrast. And then also there's the infamous cardboard in Mina's bedroom that is in the Lugosi mm -hmm. version, but is not in the Villarreal version which I think is really interesting because they're, it's a, it's a complete directorial decision in terms of like, Oh, you, I've seen the footage and what's that cardboard doing there on that lampshade? Well, you know, um, then you make a decision as, uh, as director Melford, whether you're going to do that or not. And he chooses not to do it. I thought that was really, really, yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Listeners, there's a scene in, in the Lugosi film that we're referring to and, uh, it might have been the Cinemassacre YouTube channel. One of these other YouTubers did a really in-depth breakdown of that scene. I'll try to find the link to that YouTube video and include cool. it in the show notes. Uh, it's it's weirdly it's a weird thing, I guess, in retrospect, kind of looking at it now, not really understanding what was going on. But it clearly was a choice because it doesn't That's appear right. in the Melford. It's clearly film. a choice, and they were shooting, you know, uh, they were shooting so closely together, you know, morning and evening that you have to really decide whether you're going to include that in, in the shot or not. Right. And in the scene or not. And so it's really, mm -hmm. it's really fascinating. It's really fascinating as a, uh, as a person who speaks Spanish is to realize that Lubita Tovar, Carlos Villarreal, uh, the whole cast, uh, they were, they spoke Spanish, but they were all from different parts of Latin America, like, uh, Villarreal and Pablo Alvarez Rubio, who's a terrific Renfield, in my opinion. Is he Dwight Fry? No, but he's a terrific Grenfield. They, uh, yeah, oh, he's great. He's great. Uh, those two guys are Spaniards, and Barry Norton is Argentinian, and so um, 
Lupita Tovar, uh, Carmen Guerrero, um, they are Mexican-born actresses, and the accent and the dialect are slightly different. And it's kind of, for me, it's a beautiful thing to watch. It's really interesting. So, um, but yeah, Pablo Alvarez Rubio is is pretty cool, and he and uh, Dwight Fry have the, the same memorable scenes together. Uh, Dwight has the sort of memorable, in my opinion, reaction of, I've never heard that name before. And he's the way he trembles as he controls himself. It's just in my, in my thoughts, mm-hmm. just towering acting, you know, by, by Mr. Fry and, you know, Barry Norton and, um, goodness, um, David Manners, they, they are, they are, um, their harkers are pretty straightforward and um, we don't need to go over that anymore. Certainly that's the lore of, of Jonathan yeah. Harker, but Rubio and Dwight Fry kind of steal part of that middle part of the show is, as Renfield for me, just a, yeah. a lot of fun. And the, one of the most iconic shots of all of classic universal monsters is that shot looking down the the stepladder at Renfield as he's looking up and he's got that grin. Oh, oh it, it's just an eerie yeah, image. It's, I love too. that with Dwight Fry doing that. It's, right. it's phenomenal. What Rubio does with Renfield, he plays him a little less, I don't know. A little less, yeah, gosh, in my this opinion, is where a little my... less intentionally scary. He's, he is, he, he yeah. plays him a little bit more insane. Whereas for me, Dwight Fry... Dwight yeah. Fry is like, look, I'm all in, dude. I'm all in, master. You know, I'm going to do whatever you want. Whereas Pablo just kind of plays it like uh, uh, Dracula and the Bride have, have just driven me insane, and I, I can't really um, recover from that. I, before we go any further, I have to say that in in the Lugosi yes. version, he says, I bid you welcome, but in the Villarreal version, he does not say that, which I thought was kind of... No, there's a, there's a few things that... Some iconic lines, some iconic moments from the Legacy right. film that do not appear in the Melford version of the film. And I, again, these are choices that I find I fascinating. I, I don't know anything about George Melford as a director, as an artist, as a creator. I, I know nothing about him. I know a little bit more about Todd Browning and where he came from. But Melford, I know nothing about. So I can't even imagine where some of the choices came from. But they, they work. work. In, in a different way. I don't know if some, they're better or worse in some cases, but they just you go, work in a different yeah, way. Yeah, you go, yeah. whoa, when you see stuff that yeah. goes on throughout the show. Yeah. Uh, the food is uncovered in the Melford version in um, Redfield's, uh, mm-hmm. Redfield's bedroom, and it is covered in the uh, Lugosi version. There's the two stock shots of the Demeter out in the ocean that are in the um, Browning version, and they are yes. not mm-hmm. in the Milford version, you know, and the way that contrasts Renfield uh, in both of those films. On the Demeter in, in both versions is really cool. Um, Rubio is backlit, and he's just cackling maniacally, you know, and um, the Lugosi, Lugosi Dracula is so cool, he stands out uh, in a storm and doesn't get wet, because uh, he, he's just so <laughs> darn cool, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and yet Carlos Villarreal, there's shots of the crew looking at him, and he he's got this animalistic scowl that's just like, okay, that's again mm. the whole, you know, he's not John Connery, but you know, different, he's a different guy, and it's it's still pretty cool. I just really appreciated seeing that contrast. It's like 
It's like Monster Kid Film School, essentially, when you watch both of these back-to-back, you know? You it know, really it really is. is. And I, I know that the Browning version gets a lot of criticism, I guess. I don't know if that's quite the right word. That might be too Analysis, strong a word, but it perhaps. is a little stagey. It is a little creaky. Yeah, it, it's it's a little stagey. And, you know, it's clear that Todd Browning came from the silent film school and I'm sort of Melford, but Browning just seems like afraid to move the camera around or do too much with like background or whatever. Whereas Melford seems totally at ease moving the camera around and where he places the camera there, there are shots at the beginning of the film when Renfield is coming into town in the Browning film. There's, there's, he has like a conversation with just like one guy. There's nobody else in the background. There might be a building and that's it. You don't get the impression that this is a village that he came to, but maybe it's just another set piece. In the Melford film, there's a life happening behind him. There's extras in the background. There's stuff happening. Melford had no problem moving the camera just a little bit to include all of this. And I think, like you just said, it's, it's great Monster Kid Film School to kind of see the different techniques and the different emotions you're able to get based on where you just place the camera. Something as Right. Like, for that. example, in the scene that you're discussing, director Melford decides to do a 180, and you see the crowd, and behind them you could mm-hmm. see the edge of the, of the inn but behind the edge of the end, you see the facades of the buildings um, in essentially the European street town at Universal at that point of the development of the studio. And it's literally half a house. It's like you get to the top of the pitch and yeah. you just cut that thing in half. And it's meant to be filmed from a, a direct angle so you don't see that it's half a house, but it's there. And, you know, it's cool, I. I, I get the analysis and I get the, hey, you know, that middle part is a bit stage bound, but it's based on a stage play. And there was just, there was stuff that they couldn't do. I, I believe that um, Lupita Tovar is the only person in those two movies that actually, uh, you, you see bite someone in the neck, you know, you, you see the bite marks actually mm-hmm. in the Melford version. You don't see uh, actual bite marks in, in the Browning version. So it's just a wonderful thing to compare and contrast and yes, and analyze, you know, it's just, it's, it's terrific stuff. And it's almost like an expansion of the vocabulary. What a wonderful thing. If there was a Spanish language version of, of Frankenstein, right. Or bride of Frankenstein, man, toward, you could see, you know, somebody else is, um, you know, this watching the rushes of the previous day and say, ah, you know what? I, I want to do something a little bit different uh, and, and, and pay it off in a different way and and we get to enjoy it in a different way. And I think I was reading today and, you know, I don't know how much I'm revealing here, but apparently Villarreal wore uh, a toupee and apparently it was the one with the widow's peak that Lugosi himself wore. And I haven't double-checked that as, as oh. complete fact, but I, that certainly raised my eyebrows when I read that. So... It certainly makes sense that, you know, everything was shared and compared. It was really cool to sort of go through that journey, you know, once and then um, see that second film and just go, oh, my goodness, that that scene was shot completely different. There's still that beautiful uh, narration over the the discovery of the boats and everything is in shadow because you can't mm-hmm. show it, you know. And, hey, if there's... Uh, there's one thing you learn from the VRES version. There's armadillos in Transylvania, and there's no arm. <laughs> <laughs> it's somehow apropos to a Spanish language uh, Dracula film. Uh, a potato bug as well. 
And it's pretty cool because the possum, the <laughs> possum in the Villarreal's version, maybe it had it had had a little bit too much to drink before the shoot because that's, he just steps off one of the coffins and just falls out of shot. And the Lugosi uh, possum is a little bit more uh, active. But, you know, I, I say that because for maybe some of our younger Monster Kid uh, radio fans, you couldn't show you couldn't show actual rats on screen back then. You know that was a really serious breach of uh, censorship, and you know um, it's just again it's just terrific to see all that. I loved love loved the decision of director Melford to put a light inside Dracula's coffin, so when he opens it up, right? Yes. Oh, oh my yeah. goodness, that's so cool! The light pops up, the fog comes up, and he. He just rises up. It's just, it, it's really cool. It's really cool. Yeah. And it's, it's a different way of rising too. I, I don't know. Again, it had to have been a choice. It, 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 I don't think it was accidental, but the way he comes up, uh, he stands almost as if he was coming up from a crouch, which I know is not how you lie right. in a coffin, but it just, it changes the body in, in, in a way it's, it's a much more menacing rising from the, it coffin, is. And that's what I mean. In the sense that I'm going to use the word feral, but maybe the Villarreal version yes, is a little that's, bit that's more a great way feral and like, you know, you, you look, yeah. I'm a little scarier than this guy, but Lugosi is the king of the vampires, right? Like that's kind of difference perhaps. Sure. You know, and I just thought that that was terrific. And the, the lighting thing was a deliberate choice because you see it later on in the story where he he wakes up in uh, Carfax Abbey and he comes out he climbs out of the coffin you know even even the little things where mm -hmm. the brides in the Browning version are a little bit more formal and they sort of have their hand they I mean they're creepy as all get out like don't don't you know uh, I'm not being confused here but when you cut to the close up of the brides in the Melford version there's the lighting on them and the way that they are grimacing is pretty scary. It's pretty scary. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, no argument here. I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, the way he fills the screen, the way Dracula fills the screen, whenever we cut to like a close up of Dracula and I keep going back to the beginning of the film. Cause I feel like that's where I first, where it was strongest, the differences were strongest right. for me because eventually I was able to let go and just kind of enjoy Correct. the rest of the film. Where I first, at the beginning of the movie, when Dracula comes up on the stagecoach and it's like, go see, and we get the close up of his face and the hat and, you know, the eyes being lit up or whatever. Um, the way that is shot, he's like dead center in the screen. There's some negative space on either side of him and her eyes because of the negative space are forced to kind of travel into what Lugosi's doing. When uh, the Melford Dracula, and I i can't roll my R's, so I'm not going to try to pronounce the name, but <laughs> Carlos is, um, yeah, uh, the Viarius. Okay, there we go. Viarius Dracula, his face fills the screen. It's right there. It is, again, you said feral. I right. think that's a great way to put it. His face just fills the screen and you are forced to confront him in a way that, you've lost even just a little bit of control. And I, I love that about this. It's movie. true. And you know, there's, as soon as I saw those really strong close-ups of the Villarreal's uh, eyes, I immediately shot up out of the bloodshot, uh, Christopher Lee eyes, like right away, you know, and, and I, yes. I don't know who saw what or whatever. I'm big, you know, honestly, I'm more of a sunny side of the street guy. And so I, I always look at it like, ah, eh, two of the same ideas happening you know, in two different places of the world. And, 
that you know that, sure. that it, it's really startling really kind of drawn into the Viareus Dracula and again maybe it just really too maybe that was just Melford's way of saying you know what uh, this brownie guy seems to create a slit of light over in the Lugosi uh, character uh, Lugosi Dracula what am I going to do well maybe I'll do these really bloodshot close-ups and they work you know they work and yeah, they really do. No, they and really then the, do. The, 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 there's uh-huh. extra shots of Castle Dracula as you you know go in mm-hmm. toward um, toward the castle with uh, before and then after you pick up a Renfield. So it's kind of a neat thing to see a few extra shots of the castle uh, as you're um, as you're being introduced to the story. I mean, I think the last time we talked, we talked about um Frankenstein used the Wolfman and I talked about how that opening in the cemetery is one of my favorite scenes in the Universal Monster Lexicon. Oh, yeah. But the first twenty minutes of Dracula, I mean that's like I just that's just one big, you know, adventure. It's just really cool, you know, uh, your the whole story is explained to you, you know, in the world of nineteen thirty one that may or may not have known what a vampire is. You know exactly who the undead are, what they do, what their purpose is. You know who Dracula is. The deeper that our poor Renfield, who is us, essentially, Renfield introduces us to mm-hmm. to this macabre world. It's just really a great exercise in storytelling. You know, there's, there's a reason it's so highly thought of. And that brings the analysis of the second, uh, of the second two acts of the, well, the movies we're discussing today to the floor. Okay, I get that, but you know, man, just uh, really incredible stuff, in my opinion. You know, they put they put the Skull mm-hmm. Island stuff first in this movie. Let's put it that way. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. That's yeah, a really good yeah. point. Um, you know, once we get past all of that and we get to you know uh, Van Helsing and Grenfield and Juan Harker and all the other mm-hmm. stuff going on. Even that feels more dynamic because there's there seems to be more there emotion is, going yeah. on uh, with, with the 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 Browning film. It would make a great stage play, and it was based on the stage play, so of course it would make a great stage play. I feel like Milford saw that, and it's like you know, makes a great stage play, but this right. is a film, so let's move things around, let's get things moving yeah. a little bit more. We we have control over what the audience can see because we're we've got a film camera. We can point it where we want people to look. We don't have to shoot. And he, this way. And he uses and it very that. cleverly where he motiv- he has the characters moving closer or away from each other, which in turn motivates the camera to push in or pull back into a wider shot. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's terrific stuff. And again, you know, um, uh, Mr. Melford had the advantage of seeing the dailies of of Mr. Browning's film and we never we'll never know whether Browning saw the rushes for the Melford stuff and said, Why didn't I do that? <laughs> you know, but it's still it's terrific stuff. You know, the cigarette case bashing scene is is really interesting to contrast uh with each mm-hmm. other uh, as well. It's you know, uh, I think that you're right that Melford was like, look, we gotta we gotta find some visual interest here and I believe some of the scenes with the Renfield that were shot uh, inside uh, the sanitarium are shot on the balcony in the Melford version, and so you kind of get that that, mm-hmm. that different sense. And then the the Renfield creeping up on the fainted nurse is staged completely differently, and it's 
Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, it, that's scary. It's really that's scary. It's 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 so much fun, and yet you still, and you know, sort of taking a step uh, sideways here. Where you know, we have, in my opinion, the great character of Martin. He just runs the place, and doggone it, you know, this Renfield guy keeps getting out of his um, out of his cell, and I keep having to <laughs> wrangle this fella, you know. And he's a he's he was always a treat, you know, uh, as a kid. There's mm-hmm. a scene where he's reading the newspaper and explaining the whole blooper lady, uh, the lady in white, uh, um, right? Yeah. Which is, again, if you watch both of those, you see that it's staged differently. There's a shot directly on the gates of the cemetery, whereas it's a side shot in the Browning version. And you, both of them feature the actress kind of creeping around in white, but it's, you know, it's it's terrific stuff. But but I, I will say that in terms of storytelling, uh, Lupita Tovar, you know, at one point early on says, it's kind of during her speech where she says, uh, which when she's describing her dream, she says, that's right. She basically says something, uh, and Helsinki says, when was the last time you, you know, you dreamed this? And she said, oh, um, it was uh, the day that we buried um, Lucy. And that line is not said in the Browning version, which I thought was really interesting. They don't talk about Lucy until the end of the story, and you just see both Van Helsing and Harker walking out of the cemetery, and you don't know necessarily what you've done. You've got to really think about it. And so that, in many ways, mm-hmm. that's one of the ways that I think that critics point to that and said, you know, that's really clear storytelling. You understand Lucy's story very, very clearly. You know, she died the next day, and she was buried, and then Mina started to see her, and then later on Van Helsing and the Harker had to, well, you know, do away with her, or put her peace at rest, as they say. But you know, really interesting mm-hmm. kind of linear uh, storytelling if you sit there and watch it carefully. Which I think people should try to do. I, it's it's easy to get wrapped up in it, and you know, I'm, there's no wrong way to watch I agree. a movie. You know, if you watch a movie, great, you know, just enjoy yourself, but. I think if you really give this movie a good hard look, it's going to reveal so much and give you so much more. I'm real curious, and I I don't know i I don't speak any other language. I'm a white guy. <laughs> okay. You grew up in Cheyenne, Wyoming, for crying out loud. That's honest. pretty cool, though. Know. You know, but you know that the, the but this is not just the only movie that was shot Correct. this way. There were other films that were shot in foreign languages or in other languages. Uh, you know, at night or whatever. And I would love to right. see it. And then the studios were like, wait a minute, why don't yeah. we just dub these things? You know, why don't we just dub these things is the, is the decision studio made. But uh, while this was going on, it yeah, was pretty I think cool. We're lucky and I to think have that something we, like all, this. we should all look at this as a blessing. As You know, we talk about a vampire movie. I, I agree. I agree. It's just a total, you know, it's uh, anything but a misfire. <laughs> it's a, if anything, or you should look at it like a Valentine to the original the ghosty story, you know, version. And um, I think that it's really, really fun. This version is fun and enjoyable, and I would highly recommend it to anybody who loves this stuff. It's just really, really terrific. And um, after a while, I think that you can watch it on its own. Uh, I mean, even when I was a, when I was younger, and it was funny, I, I, I should mention this in passing, I, the first five years of my career, um, I spent a lot of time on the Universal lot. You know, we talked a little bit about that the last time we were here, yeah. And I just remember thinking, oh, so lucky. Right, and so <laughs> it's really cool for me to watch the um, the opera scene, and 
now as a well think of myself as a little boy watching it and now as kind of an older guy and think you know what i was i actually went on that stage it was during a pretty mediocre <laughs> show called sequest that we don't really need to talk about but all the cool sets were surrounded by the uh, the opera set from phantom of the opera and that box from dracula because they shot that scene in that same uh stage that they shot uh, the Phantom of the Opera. And I went in there, I went up there, uh, and I looked around, and I just, you know, I spent many a lunchtime just kind of bopping around the Universal lots, the ins and outs, European streets, and seeing, you know, uh, the buildings with doors that wouldn't open and, you know, or would open to, you know, two-by-fours and, you know, um, being told, hey, you know, uh, that's the Phantom stage. Uh, it's haunted by the guard and then you know the, the director's like you know look there's possibly of skunks all over the studio dude that's what they're that's what they're running into man you know and so and so <laughs> in, in a way Derek uh, I you know we talk about blessings and stuff like that when we watch this show truly I'm just really grateful that as a little boy that was a monster kid that just obsessed about you know whether his Aurora um, mummy who had his knuckles cut off match the mummy uh the knuckles and the carice uh, movies and and yet i was able to end up you know walk around the the haunted city of my dreams and i'm just you know really grateful <sighs> for all that stuff man truly truly help see I, I when you told me a little bit about this the last time and i think about it, it's like you know I would have gotten fired because on day two, <laughs> I would have gotten intentionally lost on my lunch break, wandering around these sets and never came back because I could just imagine getting lost in there. Well, you know, it's funny. And, I mean, uh, I was pretty wow. disciplined. I would do my work. And then, you know, when I wasn't having lunch with a buddy, I would uh, grab my lunch and I would go out to the set in a golf cart and I would gobble my lunch. And then, you know, I was in Nirvana. I would, you know, I would uh, walk around European streets and I would go down to the sequest stages and I was like, those are the sequest stages. And to myself, I was like, no, dude, that's the Phantom of the Opera stage, man. Like that's, you know, that's where, where I'm at. And then just to kind of sit in the same seats that, that oh. the Gozi and, you know, Helen Chandler and Lupita Tovar, it turns out, you know, uh, what, a, right. what a gift that was. And I just, you know, uh, and then, you know, 20 years later, that kid end up, ends up writing a Dracula novel. How about that? To tie that all together, you know. So it's it's been a pretty cool, you know, thing to have happen. But more than anything, you know, uh, when we talked about this, right away I watched them back-to-back, and it was I was still that little kid just, in, you know, enjoying, you know, that sort of light that goes across Bella's face and thinking, whoa, that's Dracula, right? Like, that's Dracula right there, you know, and. Um, it's just mm -hmm. terrific. And then, you know, as to, you get to the end of the story and you, you see the differences, you see that director Melford says, okay, I'm going to have a shot of Dracula putting, um, Eva down. And then he sees the sun. So he's like, darn it. I can't, I can't kill her. So he leaves her alone, which is not in the Lugosi version. Right. So there is that kind of extra layer of storytelling that, that you see in, um, the Melford version that again, you know, we shouldn't look at it like, you know, monster kid fistfight time. We should look at it like, hey, that's really cool. And, you know, it's just a different way of telling the same story. So, exactly. right, all cool stuff. 
I, I think that's a great way to put it and a great way to sum up this this part of the conversation. I'm sure uh, people can talk about this movie, these Thank movies. You. Back to make a shoe and I probably. Yeah, no, I, I, I will say that the, the unspoken third Dracula that no one talks about that I like a lot is the 79 Dracula. And we'll huh. leave that for another time in the universe. But that's, that's another one that I really, really like that people analyze in the same way that they scrutinize, in my opinion, the the Arias version. And for me, it's just one big bowl of Nosferatu soup that I think everybody should enjoy. So. <laughs> Nosferatu that's soup. Right. Don't know what it tastes like, except I know it doesn't taste like garlic. Well, it may, um. maybe it tastes like Clamato. Maybe it's a Clamato thing. Hey, no, there I you don't go. Know. Yeah. There you go. I don't know. I, I, used, you know? I used to buy those. Um, I, my parents used to take me to according lessons when I was a little kid, and I hated them. Oh, my God. But there was a liquor store next door that sold these packets of, of uh, bubble, bubble gum cards that were the Universal Monsters. They were the production stills. <laughs> And they had these really funny little lines underneath, you know, about, you know, Clamato uh-huh. in the soup or whatever, like stuff like that that we always uh, enjoyed. But I look forward to going to accordion lessons, not for the accordion lessons, you know, uh, but for the uh, for the bubblegum cards with the Universal Monsters uh, on them that I adored. I adored. So, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think I think we just came up with another movie to add to the list of movies that we're going to talk about someday because I've never seen the '79 Dracula. Oh, I man. know. Ah. No, I've I'm... listened to the score. I love the soundtrack. John Williams is fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. But I've never seen the film. No, I I have the uh, I have the soundtrack or Screen Factory, I should say, version that came out last year. It's pretty yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot. It's very gothic. It's very traditional. And um, I, I think it's a really strong entry. Um, it's in, in many ways, it takes the issues of the second and third act of the 31 films, I'll say, and um, mm-hmm. adds uh, some pretty creepy, cool stuff to it. Yes. The, again, well, it has the usual criticism that other you know, folks have come up uh, to describe it, and I agree, just like I agree that you know, there's stuff that could be analyzed in the the two 1931 films, but you know, to me, it's all it's all good stuff. You know, so if I if you buy uh, Barnabas Collins uh, speaking Spanish when you're a kid, you're going to buy a lot of stuff, and that's that's how it was for me. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh man, Ricardo, this was awesome. I'm so glad we did this, and uh, yeah, me too. Uh, Thank you were you. able to do this so short notice. No, no, my uh, pleasure. This is going to be going out this week, so we're oh really going to make sure people. Yeah, we're it's short turnaround on this one. Okay, so no, that's, I'm excited that's cool. to get it. No, I mean, you you were like, hey, you you want to talk Dracula? I'm like, no, of course not. I hate Dracula. Why would I want to talk about Dracula? <laughs> <laughs> and so then, boom, here we are. So yeah, I, I totally look forward to it. You know, certainly. <laughs> I follow Monster Kid Radio on on Facebook, and I enjoy all the posts. I throw a few up there myself every once in a while. So I, I look forward to, to everyone's feedback and uh, enjoyment of this really cool stuff. You know, uh, officially, you know, when it gets to August, I feel like we're in Halloween season already. So yeah, I agree. I think. Um, well, I mean, it's it's Halloween, right? Three sixty five over on. here, but you know, there you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And we oh, got, I love it. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I love it when you talk creature of the Black Lagoon with other other guests because I'm a big uh, creature guy. Uh, I've got like seven or eight of them 
around my studio. I love that guy. Oh, yeah, love you that know, guy. You know, I I cannot get enough of Creature. I, I people know. <laughs> Right, I can't shut up about that movie. I love that movie. Oh my so god, much. the photography, um, the underwater photography and creature from the Black Lagoon oh, is the sharpest, so good, so beautiful. And look, no disrespect to the land crew, right, everybody, but my goodness, when you're a little kid and you want, when I watched Creature from the Black Lagoon as a little boy the first time, that was the first time mm-hmm. that I was I was young enough to go, I, I I think that's a real monster. I think that's real, you know, because it looked. The, the the that suit it is like 50 years ahead of its time that that design that suit the way it moved the way it breathed mm. oh my, there's that mm-hmm. shot where it's walking at you and it's you see the gills opening and closing oh god he's like gasping for oh air my, and then, oh. yeah and that was that might have been one of the first times i cursed as a little boy when i saw that and i was like that's like the coolest <laughs> thing i've that and godzilla chewing on a uh, train might have been the coolest things I saw as a little boy, you know, mixed in with all the stuff that we talked about right now. But like, I, sure. I believe, I, I'm like, well, is, you know, Godzilla, you know, is it real? But the creature from the Black Lagoon, that that guy was real for me. Holy smokes, that was cool stuff. Oh man, right? They they just showed that up here in 3D. Holy smokes! Uh, at the Joy Cinema. So yeah, I was I was there. Um, it's the second time I've shown I've shared the movie with my girlfriend. She wanted to see it, and they showed it in 3D. So got to watch that one of my best friends was there with me with a couple of his kids that's cool i got to introduce the movie it was so fun i mean though the whole uh, trilogy i i'm a big fan of revenge of the creature him flipping that car over oh yeah just, i was like well that's so amazing so you know they're great right all three, and creature walks among us is so underrated i agree. I, I've really warmed up to that one no too. i agree because right so away good. you take what is supposed to be the antagonist and you and you flip it and suddenly you go oh my god i feel sorry for this giant manfish guy and it's just it's a really mm-hmm. cool story and um you know also you know as a kid who grew up in the 60s looking at 1950s florida and los angeles is, is pretty cool those locations are pretty awesome you know and again yeah. that photography that and i loved in Cre- okay we're getting totally off the subject here forgive me but the shot of the <laughs> creature in the aquarium with all those fish in revenge of the creature is just Stunning for me to watch, always. Oh yeah, right. Anyway. Oh yeah. So. Oh, so good. Yeah, so good. So great. So fantastic. Loved all that. Stuff, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, um, what a pleasure it was oh, to be man. here with uh, you and talk about things that bump in the night and things that swim through the water. Apparently, and you know, I, <laughs> you know, we'll do it again soon, my friend. Oh, for sure. Well, before you go, yes. Got to do a round of the Classic Five with you, sir. Okay, let's do it. The Classic Five. All right, all right. So I got a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards has a this to that, which movie do you prefer style question on them. There are no wrong answers. It's just a a way to get monster kids talking or keep them talking about their favorite topic, monster movies. Ricardo, are you ready to play a round of the Classic Five? Yes, I am, and I'm honored to play it. And also, this is kind of another uh, occasion used to warm up the... uh, the guest, but I guess I, I came into this already warmed up, so I'm good to go. Let's hey, go. we came into this hot, That's so we, you know. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Let's go. All right, card number one, right off the top. What is your favorite Abbott and Costello meat monster movie? Fra- meat Frankenstein is powering, okay? It's astonishing. Mm-hmm. It, above all, as John Landis once told me, he says, Ricardo, I want you to remember this. Um, that movie respects the universal monsters, okay? 
And sure. that's totally true. And yet I do have a soft spot in my heart for Meet the Mummy. It's I, I enjoy it. Really? Yes, I do. But again, you know, um, Meet Frankenstein is just in the, uh, one of the ten poles of my childhood. It's a worthy conclusion to all the beautiful stuff in the 30s and 40s. And um, I love it. Flat out love it. Because that's that's within all of that, you get the mini scene of Dracula versus uh, the Wolfman, right? Or the Wolfman meets Dracula. You got to see that. So, yep. You know, mm-hmm. love it. Mm-hmm. Love it. And, you know, there's the young lady from Cat People as well. So it's a terrific picture. Hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, Lon Chaney Jr. and um, Luke Costello should have gone on tour after that movie because they were natural. <laughs> they were incredible. You know, the line that uh, um, Lou says about you and a million other guys, that's like that. That's like, you know, Casablanca with a gambling joke that just never stops being funny. You know, it's terrific. Uh, did I, I don't know if I, I even answer your question, but, you know, meets Frankenstein is, is my choice. That's my favorite. Count Dracula sleeps in this coffin, but rises every night at sunset. Chick is right. This is awful silly stuff. Come on, take it all out. No! Come here, chick! Come here! Savannah, come here! Wait a minute! The nation's top comics, Abbott and Costello. Petrified, but hilariously. Dangerous and terrifying Wolfman, played by Lon Chaney. Plus that fiend out of a nightmare, the vampire Batman, Count Dracula, played by Bela Lugosi. Plus the most dreaded creature of them all, the Frankenstein monster, played by Glenn Strange. Plus a couple of luscious but designing females in the spookiest laugh fest on record. Frankenstein's great. Mummy's great. I'm I'm a big fan of the Invisible Man. You know, there there it is as well. That's a good one. I can't. I, I again, we can't argue with that. One. Okay. All right. Card number two. If you could swap places with any character from a classic monster movie, who would it be? Well, if you're the creature from the Black Lagoon, you get to swim around and do whatever you want until the crew shows up to harpoon you and do awful stuff to you. You know, if you're, you know, uh, Larry Talbot, you're okay until you show up into that one town. As a little boy, those, the creature and the wolfman uh, were my favorites. And I would have to stick with uh, one of those two, the wolfman winning by a nose. I just, I love the wolfman. Okay. Yeah. It's a great film. Yeah. It's a great film. Yes. All right. Card number three, Alfred Hitchcock or William Castle? Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. That's talk, that's a proverbial arm behind the back, but uh, I do love Hitchcock, The Birds. The Birds is a oh, terrific, so it's good. a tremendous picture. It's a tremendous picture. Okay. But Bill Castle, sir, I salute you from afar. Yeah, I just started. I've been meaning to read it, and I, it's been on my shelf forever. I just started reading his autobiography. Um, Ooh, really? The William Castle autobiography. Okay. I'm going to... Uh, step right up i think is what it's called okay i'm gonna have to but yeah yeah hunt that one down thank you all right uh card number four son of kong or son of godzilla 
Son of Kong has dinosaurs in it. So um, <laughs> it wins by a nose as well. Although I do love Son of Godzilla. Son of Kong is, it is uh, not his father's uh, Kong, if you will. But the I, I just have no, uh, never-ending love for the O'Brien stop-motion Skull Island stuff. It's, mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. wonderful. It's a world that I, as a little boy, you know, uh, again, we could talk about King Kong for two or three hours, dude. And just like my obsession with that island, that technique, you know, himself. I, I remember being a little boy and watching um, those movies and seeing a guy named Delgado in the in the uh, screen i'm not related marcel is mexican and i'm costa rican but holy smokes you know just a seminal uh, choice um yeah son of kong skipper believe it or not there's a little kong what a little how little Tarantula or the Dudley Mantis? Oh, Tarantula. It's, but, uh, yeah. I, I actually, I apologize for hesitating. I shouldn't have hesitated. As soon as you said Tarantula, I should have said Tarantula before you said the second choice. Although I, <laughs> I, I did have uh, some model kits as a kid of like giant insects attacking cities. And I, I, I got the black scorpion one. But yeah, Tarantula is, is pretty amazing. It's, uh, it's the only one where... Um, I thought, okay, Black Scorpion had stop motion, but that tarantula looks pretty darn real. Loved it. Loved tarantula was my choice. Absolutely. So there you go. Excellent. But what if circumstances were to magnify one of them in size and strength, took it out of its primitive world and turned it loose in ours, then expect something that's fiercer, more cruel and deadly than anything that ever walked the earth? Even science was stunned. The new atomic miracle should have been mankind's greatest boon. Instead, when such power to cause phenomenal growth proved dangerously unstable, man was confronted with his most shocking blunder. The isotope triggered our nutrient into a nightmare. A blunder that transformed a tiny insect into the hundred-foot spider that was now ravaging the panic-stricken countryside. It's been awesome chatting with you. Listeners, please check out Dracula Transylvania and what Ricardo's up to. And I've got the new book coming out later this year. As soon as we know more, I'll make sure that I talk about it here on the show. Thank you for doing this. And uh, let's not wait so long. And next time I say let's talk about this, let's not wait forever to actually talk about a movie on the show. I know. We talked about, you know, Culture at the Night Stalker. We even... You know, mm-hmm. talk about Island of the Lost Souls, which, in my opinion, is the best horror movie of the 1930s for many horrifying reasons, which we can get out our lightsabers and, you know, have a friendly duel about. But uh, never a wrong time to talk about monsters with me. And it certainly sounds like you feel the same way. So, truly. Yeah, it's, it's a great way to spend a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. So. Thank you, good sir. I certainly appreciate it. And my best to all the monster kids out there. Thank you for all what you do. Mm-hmm. 
All right, gang, thanks for listening. Here we are at the end of the show where I tell you that I appreciate you for being part of the Monster Kid Radio experience by listening to the show, hopefully sharing posts about the show, sharing your love of the podcast with everybody else. We can get more listeners and just make the Monster Kid Radio community the Monster Kid Radio heads, whatever you all want to call yourselves, the irregulars. Just spread the word. I appreciate all the shares and the tweets and the reposts and everything else. You can find us online, various social media outlets. Facebook has a Facebook page and Facebook group. We have a Twitter, a Reddit, a Discord, and a Patreon. Please consider joining, liking, retweeting, sharing, posting, patronizing, 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 discording, becoming a patron, liking, subscribing, whatever it is you're supposed to do online. Just please consider doing that. You can find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio over at monsterkidradio.net in the show notes. You're going to find links to everything that we've talked about here. We're going to find links to Ricardo's book. Please consider using the Amazon affiliate link when you do that because it helps us out a little bit. Also put a link to that Cinemassacre video that I was mentioning about the cardboard in Dracula. It's going to put a link to that as well. So go check that out. And you'll see a note there announcing what's coming up next week on the show. Jack, he thinks in a strong rock. Mm. There's plenty of Cuban sugar, though. Here's what happened. The general beat his friend Castro to the Cuban treasury. The strong box is now on this boat. So are a deported American gangster and his mall. And lurking in the depths is the creature from the haunted sea. You're a crazy mixed-up kid. I am perfectly adjusted to my life of crime. Don't worry, Mary Bell. I'll save you. It's all right. Be calm, everybody. The boat's insured. Talking about Creature from the Haunted Sea with Go Forth and Games, Tom Greganis. Come back for that in seven days. If you have any feedback for the show about what we've talked about this week, previous episodes, or what we're going to be talking about next week, please consider dropping us a line as well. You can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 360-524-2484. That, of course, is over at the website as well. All right, that's it. Let's go ahead and get out of here so I can get the episode uploaded and send you on your way. Thanks again for listening. Remember, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Moon Surfing. That is copyright 2022. The band is Wave Electric. You can find them over at waveelectric.bandcamp.com and check out their album, self-titled Debut LP. Let them know that you heard about them here on MKR. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.